Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, another week on Political Rewind has flown by as we get to the Friday edition of our show. Um, I hope you've all uh, found being with us this week has been meaningful and helpful uh, in, uh, in giving you an opportunity to hear from our panelists about what's happening in the news. There's always way too much news. Um, I'm going to introduce the panel in just a moment, but you know, I was thinking... You know, international news is not in our wheelhouse at Political Rewind, but I I know that we all, as we watch this horrendous news coming out of Syria and Turkey, more than 20,000 people dead in an earthquake that struck like a flash. Entire families lost, um, homes, businesses destroyed. Who knows how long before they're going to be able to repair the massive damage across both of those countries. And and I only bring it up today because it reminds me of wanting to live every moment as if it's precious. I mean, the people who woke up that morning in those countries had no idea what was in store for them. And and so I'm thinking, uh, and I hope you do too, about how fortunate we are that we all have another day and that we do live it with a great meaning. I'm sorry about the philosophy, but it's just struck me in a very big way uh, this past week, week watching the tragedies unfold in those countries. Okay, let's get down to the business of this show. Let me introduce the panel. I'm very happy that Greg Bluestein is with us on our Friday edition of the show, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you for be- accommodating my schedule change. Yeah, no, you know, we usually, of course, I, listeners know by now you're usually with us on Wednesday, and we're glad when uh, you'll allow us to bring you in on a different day when you're not available on Wednesdays. Donna Lowry is with us, host of Lawmakers. You're very busy these days. Uh, yeah. Donna, how's, how's Lawmakers going every night at 7 on GPB-TV? <laughs> Well, thanks for that commercial. Um, Yeah, we're doing great. It's been busy. It's starting to ramp up. And even though some of the things at the the Capitol haven't ramped up as much as uh, we expected, we've had some really great shows, I think, with uh, lawmakers talking about their bills. The uh, we never uh, uh, should uh, forget to mention lawmakers is the longest running show in uh, Georgia television, right? Wow. 53 years this year. <laughs> Very amazing. Uh, and yeah, congratulations on being a part of an important program. And Tia Mitchell is back with us as well. Boy, talk about somebody who's had a consequential week. Tia, you were in the gallery, the press gallery, during that State of the Union uh, speech Tuesday night. 
uh, you must have felt to some extent, I've said this a couple times on the show this week, that you were in the English Parliament watching PM questions, not watching a State of the Union address. Yeah, I mean, um, America is definitely shifting. Congress is shifting its rules of decorum. That was quite clear um, during the speech on Tuesday night. Yeah, and I think we should talk a little more about that. We have a couple times this week, but um, as the week comes to an end, I'm looking forward to getting your take on how you saw things unfold from a seat right there overlooking the House uh, chamber. But, uh, Greg, let's start with um, the reaction to the Atlanta Police Department videos that have been released uh, that show us nothing about the direct conflict that led to the shootings, uh, but just Atlanta Police Department actions around those shootings as as APD was involved in these efforts to clear the forest from activists that day. And, and I think the starting point for me, Greg, is that um, it's it's hard to say that these videos really give us any definitive understanding of the most important event that day, and that was the shooting death of an activist and the severe wounding of an Atlanta police officer. They simply don't tell us anything about those awful events. Bill, you're exactly right, because the GBI said that no body camera or dash cam video of the actual shootings exists. So now we've got the situation where the family of the activist who was slain, um, they say that this video raises more questions than they answer. And we've also seen activists seize on a single line uttered in the two hours or so of footage um, that they think is a, they they say is evidence of a cover-up where an officer is held, is heard just basically saying, you messed your own officer up. Whereas the Atlanta Police Department says, no, that's that was just a stray remark. And so clearly we still have significant questions about what exactly happened. And with no video, no conclusive video of showing what exactly happened, we might never know those answers. Tia? And I was going to, I think Greg is exactly right. And that's why what's happening in Atlanta with the Public uh, Safety Training Center is part of this broader conversation nationally about police accountability, because what activists are saying is we have too many examples of the past of police saying one thing And then when evidence or video comes out, it shows another thing. And so that has affected confidence when police give a narrative that is not backed up by camera footage. And in 2023, I do honestly find it quite surprising. I'm not saying that the officers there were doing anything wrong, but it's just very surprising and quite frankly goes against what we know to be best practices right now for any police agency not to have body cameras right now, especially when you're taking on a high risk, um, a high risk kind of uh, investigation or whatever, as they were doing that day in the forest. Donna, I think that's exactly the right point here. Um, In the absence of definitive proof from the video, uh, this does conjure up all of the the worst feelings that many people uh, have about whether police are being honest in the way they talk about the confrontations they've had. And as recently, of course, 
as the Tyree Nichols horrific beating, um, we see uh, misbehavior, criminal behavior by police. And, and so it's not surprising that the lack of body cam video has raised even more questions about what's happened here. No, absolutely. I think in the shadow of the Tyree Nichols incident, I think this this actually amplifies a little bit of the concerns that people have had about what's going on with police officers and the kinds of things that they say, even that we hear on the police cam, um, the, the, the body cam, uh, some of the things that they say uh, that proves to be different from um, what investigations determine in the end. I think that all of that is something that makes people very leery of what's going on with police officers. And honestly, I think in terms of what the activists are, are doing, make people understand a little bit about why they've been so um, so fervent in their interest in making sure that people understand what this cops, what has been known as Cop City is all about. So, so Greg, uh, statements on on both sides of this let me let me share them with you southern center for human rights a highly respected uh, organization dealing with civil rights and dealing particularly with uh, uh, prison conditions and um, law enforcement uh, said this uh, it was deeply concerned they say about the footage which they suggest say suggests that uh, Atlanta Police Department quote coordinated a raid it did not adhere that did not adhere to its own standard operating procedures relating to body cameras and other behaviors. But the fact of the matter is APD did have body cameras on, which is some of the video that we now have. And we should say the state patrol uh, argument for the fact that their officers weren't wearing body cameras is, as they say, that they've always had dashboard cameras, which is more often where you would capture the actions that a state trooper is taking uh, when he stops a car or a vehicle in 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 some uh, uh, manner, right? Exactly. And look, uh, the, you know, the GBI has responded to 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 the outrage, the reaction about the video, saying speculation is not evidence. Our investigation does not support that statement from the Atlanta police officer um, who was saying they, you know, question basically suggesting it was friendly fire. And the Atlanta police department has has said that the the same. Um, that several responding officers are heard commenting about the shooting as they approach the site. We have found no evidence to suggest these officers had any information on the events surrounding the shooting prior to their comments. But the fact remains, as Tia and Donna have both mentioned, that without those, without that dash, that video cam, uh, that body cam footage, or without that dash cam footage or video evidence, um, it's very hard to figure out what exactly happened. And there is rampant reason uh, to be uh, cautious and skeptical about police statements, given what's happened in our country in the last five years, where we've had videos that directly refute exactly what police officers say happened. And I just have a question, yeah. maybe Greg or Bill, you may know the answer, but to me, when when they say, you know, the reason why our guys don't have body cameras is because they're usually pulling people over the side of the road of the highway, which makes perfect sense. But then it makes me say, so why were they the guys that were sent into a forest? And that's a good yeah. question. And I think one of the answers is it's a multi-agency task force, right? So you had GBI, you had APD, you had a number of different agencies responding because it's such a big uh, uh, operation. 
Um, but you're right, you know, and I think I think if the mayor's office had its druthers, it would just be APD. And I'm just spec I am speculating here, but uh I, I think they would rather contain and control this 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 this, this development now um rather than have so many different agencies. Um meanwhile, yeah. we know that Cherry bought but go ahead, Donna. Do you want to jump in here? No. No, I was going to um, mention that there is a uh, House bill uh, right now. The, the general, you know, the, the Democrats are pushing House Bill 325, um, Transparency in Policing Act. And that is uh, a, a move to try to get to body, body cameras on police officers, uh, all law enforcement in this state. Um, I don't know how far it'll go, but there is an effort at least to try to make sure that happens and also to just have a discussion about it. So right now, you know, it's in public safety, safety and the Homeland Security Committee, and we'll see where it goes. Uh, thank you. You anticipated exactly the question I wanted to ask you, Donna. Uh, uh, but finally, before we move on, we should also point out, Greg, that um, the district attorney in DeKalb County, Sherry Boston, because this facility is going to be on property in DeKalb. So under normal circumstances, this would be uh, an investigation of this incident would fall to her office. She has recused herself. She's passed it on to the prosecuting attorney's counsel saying, you determine who should really investigate this. And one of the reasons for that is that, as you pointed out, the uh, law enforcement that is part of, was part of that operation included DeKalb County officers, and she felt she had a conflict. So, Greg, it is my understanding that for the time being, this is in the hands of GBI, and it remains to be seen whether anything that happened there would lead to criminal charges for anyone involved in this incident, and whether there was any misbehavior by the officers who fired the 14 shots that hit um, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the activist. Yeah, and this is standard procedure when there could be a conflict of interest. It's called a conflict prosecutor, someone who can step in and take command of a case if there is a conflict of interest. And so um, that's the role that the prosecuting attorney's counsel is taking, and they're they're seeking a, a conflict prosecutor to oversee any potential charges to those involved. Okay, um, let's move on. Um, yesterday, Cody Hall. Uh, was on the show with us. He, of course, used to be the governor's communications director. Uh, he's now got his own uh, consulting firm, but he also uh, was just named the executive director of what is Governor Kemp's national PAC, Hardworking Americans, uh, which they really rolled out with a website, big website yesterday. Cody will be the executive director of that organization. And, and Greg, you cover... Uh, Kemp regularly, and and I, so I want to ask you a little bit about this uh, this big national rollout for Kemp, which happened not coincidentally while they're up in Washington for the Republican Governors Association uh, meeting. You know, Cody is always a great talker. He really knows how to uh, uh, make the points that uh, uh, he wants his governor, Governor Kemp, uh, put he puts governor in, in the best light. Um, what do you make of this national uh, rollout and what it means for the future of Brian Kemp? You know, to me, it's clear sign that he continues to want to 
play a role in 2024. He wants to stay in the mix, stay in the conversation, have folks not just here in Georgia, but nationally talking about him. And we've seen a, a string of national reports suggesting he could run for president, suggesting he could be a VP contender. I personally have not seen any telltale signs of a, of a governor running for president. That had to start you know, a couple of years ago. I'm, I'm not saying it won't happen. I don't think it will. Um, he's not going to Iowa. He's not going to South Carolina. He hasn't staffed up and hired, you know, dozens of staffers all over the place. He hasn't written a book. All these things that you see, you often see presidential candidates do. Brian Kemp hasn't done yet. But at the same time, he's using his clout. He has a 62% approval rating in Georgia. He has a national profile. Uh, and he just beat Stacey Abrams and Donald Trump's handpick uh, contender in the last year's cycle of elections. So he's using his clout right now. I think that you'll continue to see that. I think you'll see him going to be a surrogate for national candidates. I think you'll see him travel a lot more. And I think he will be someone that is talked about as a potential running mate for anyone not named Donald Trump. But at the same time, I don't think we're seeing him quite go to the level of running for president anytime soon. Donna, uh, yesterday, uh, Kevin Riley, Jim Galloway, and I grilled Cody uh, pretty aggressively on this hard-working language. I mean, let's face it, we heard him talk. How many times have you heard that? Brian Kemp talking about hardworking Georgians. Now it's hardworking Americans. And, and and of course, it becomes a question because what does it mean exactly? Is he drawing a line between those people who really are out there, jobs, productive in society, and the have-nots who for one reason or another uh, don't have the same flexibility, who may be on welfare, who uh, may be, um, uh, you know, uh, unable uh, to work. What it, it it feels like a class distinction. Cody denies yeah, it adamantly. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know you're talking about people with disabilities, people with problems that they cannot work. Um, and then it also is curious to me that it's also coming at a time that what we're hearing at the Capitol has a lot to do with the fact that they're having a hard time finding people to fill all the jobs, you know. Um, so, you know, the big the one of the big themes is workforce in this state. And and what is curious to me on the the, the website, which is, you know, the hardworking Americans website, which is very nice, very very slick and all, but it focuses more very much on more the blue collar jobs. Um, not, not uh, there's a little bit of him at a farm, of course. So that certainly is an ode to what you know our agriculture economy in the state. But what about the hospitality industry? All of these different places that uh, really need workers. Workers, and it sort of you know um, kind of puts us everybody in just this one little hardworking. Um, you know, just kind of a mode that that that's all we're um, what all we're focused on in a, at as a country, and not um, not looking as much at um, those who can't be as hardworking. And what is the definition, as you say, of hardworking um, <laughs> when it comes to things? And and you know what we've seen with a lot of the young people, uh, they're leaving jobs, moving on a lot, those kinds of things. So there is uh, the feeling that um, uh, you know it's very subjective. Yeah, you know, Tia, if you take the new website, Hardworking Americans, as an example, we're going to be seeing a lot of Brian Kemp in blue jeans and work shirts in the months and years ahead. Uh, it's very interesting. And what the reason I turn to you on this is I think 
that on Tuesday night, President Biden uh, had a shot across the bow on people like Brian Kemp trying to claim that populist blue-collar contingency for their own. President Biden made it clear he thinks he can go after those very same people with the populist messages he had in the State of the Union address. Yeah, I think, um, first of all, you know, Greg, of course, is the Brian Kemp whisperer. But I think Greg is right that what's obvious is that Brian Kemp is raising his national profile so he can see where he does fit in the political landscape. Might not necessarily be for 2024, but we know he's going to be looking for a new job in 2026. And those things come quickly. And um, whether it's Senate, whether it's... um, you know, looking at a national office, Brian Kemp is laying the groundwork. Um, But pivoting to President Biden, President Biden has always envisioned himself as someone who represents the working class. You know, I, yes, we connect him with Delaware and, but we also connect him with Scranton, Pennsylvania, you know, and I think also President Biden, and this was a big theme of his State of the Union speech on Tuesday, he really is working hard to say he speaks for everyone. And I think that is kind of similar to what Governor Kemp has attempted to do as well. Both of them are clearly like Joe Biden is a Democrat through and through. Brian Kemp is a conservative Republican through and through. But both of them in their messages to their constituents say, I am trying to work for everyone. And they both, quite frankly, do try to take populist stances when they can, when it lines up with their politics. You know, Brian Kemp has done a lot of rebates and tax cuts and 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 uh, raises for public employees that are very populist. Um, and, and of course, President Biden has a long list of things he says he's accomplished and wants to accomplish that poll really well. Greg, I think that is exactly right. Now, they differ strongly on many important issues. Joe Biden is pro-choice. Brian Kemp has passed one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. Uh, Joe Biden wants to see uh, gun restrictions. Uh, Governor Kemp has made it easier and easier to have and carry guns. Nevertheless, they it's despite those strong, stark differences in political philosophy, in many ways, they are talking to the same Americans now. They really are. And, oh, we're going to get all sorts of pushback from the Kemp aides listening and because, Bill, they all listen to your program. <laughs> but they're both, as Tia said, they're both trying to talk past the activists, you know, the, the pundits. You heard in Governor Kemp's speech, in his inaugural, he said, I don't care about the pundits. He said, I'm talking to regular people. I, I want to reach out to regular people. And and that's what Joe Biden's message was to the nation. You know, he's not cons- consumed by what the professional activists think, what, by what talking heads on TV think, even if sometimes the talking heads on TV are the people on this panel. Um, they're concerned about what regular people worry about. And one of the most striking of many striking lines I heard was when Joe Biden was telling um, Republicans not to take credit for his infrastructure measure. And and he goes, even if you do, I'll see you at the ribbon cuttings. Right. So it's (laughs) about getting things done for people. (laughs) I thought that was a great moment as well. Um, Well, we've got the ball in your court and then you all can weigh in on this. Uh, Greg, you and uh, Salzer, James Salzer, uh, 
uh, filed a piece about the governor's inauguration, inaugural ball. And um, you point out in this, the overriding theme of it is, there was a lot of money spent on this thing, um, just as there was when he was sworn in in 2019. And we don't really know a whole lot about who paid what for this event. Um, and I guess I'm a little surprised. I, I always assumed that this would be a matter of public record. And it used to be. It used to always be a matter of public record, or at least at least most most aspects of it were. And there was a break from tradition about a decade ago under Nathan Deal's administration, um, where not as much information was revealed. Total numbers were, but who gave and what they gave wasn't. And AJC budget expert James Salzer is an expert at this. He reverse engineered a lot of the donations. So we were able to track down about 426,000 donations from a dozen donors. Um, but that's just a fraction of what was given. And, you know, it, it was a it was a gala uh, that thousands of people attended, Democrats, Republicans, donors, lobbyists, folks on both sides of the party aisle. Um, but it's important to know who gave and what they gave, because, of course, a lot of those have those companies have interest before the governor. And we have campaign finance disclosure laws. But this falls falls under a murky subset of the law that doesn't require transparency. And so, yes, we would love to see those numbers, um, but the governor's team, the governor's aides said they're not disclosing them. Yeah, Donna, um, uh, Greg and James report that back in 2003, Sonny Purdue's first inaugural, um, they reported spending $2.5 million and I think had full disclosure of where those gifts came from. But by 2014, they report, Nathan Deal reported a million four but was not giving full disclosure. And the, the difference is, and continues to be now under Kemp, that instead of the money going directly to the campaign organizations or the inaugural committees, whatever they are, they run them through nonprofits, and therefore the donors do not have to be r revealed, Donna. It's how they hide who's giving what. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that. You know, that that has been the trend over the years to put things into nonprofits so that we don't get a full idea of, of what spending is, not just with this, but with other things. So I think um, I think we're going to have to see a push to change all of that. And and um, I, the reporting by Greg and um and and James, I think, is part of all of that. One of the things I think is interesting, is, and I'm glad you guys re were able to report this, is that um, the cigarette maker, Altria, is being one of the donors. And we know that year after year, in recent years at least, we've seen a push to um, bring up the state tobacco tax rates and one of the lowest in the country and so they, I, that one stuck out for me that we've got a bill right now with uh senator i mean representative michelle al who's uh, trying to change that so i think we need to know this this information we need to know who we're dealing with down at the capitol and where why some of these things are are happening um in terms of um pushbacks on bills like the tobacco tax yeah, you know what? Michelle Al was on our show yesterday talking about that very thing, the tobacco tax, which does have bipartisan uh, support. Um, Tia, one last uh, point about this before we have to get to a break, because I'm already late. Just another quick example. We know that the um, automobile 
uh, 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 retailers uh, give a lot of money uh, to things like uh, a Kemp inaugural. And right now, when you have the electric vehicle manufacturers coming into the state who want to be able to sell directly to consumers, bypass the automobile dealers, um, if, if there's going to need legislation to expand what Tesla already got a little concession on in this state. But you've got automobile dealers giving a lot of money, apparently, to a guy like Kemp, and it can't help but have some influence on the thinking under the gold dome. Yeah, and that's why this transparency is is would be a good thing so that people can better understand the synergy, the, the, the role of money in politics and the access that we know it provides. Because these people aren't just... Uh, writing checks out of the goodness of their heart or for tax write-offs. They're writing checks because, you know, a certain amount comes with a table in a VIP reception attended by the governor and the first lady, or it gets your name on the program book so everyone can see that you're, you know, in the midst. Like they got something for their money and it would be great if people could understand how much money that was and what they got in return. All right, Tia Mitchell gets the last word in this segment of Political Rewind. Back with more in a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. AJC reporters Tia Mitchell and Greg Bluestein, who not only file uh, individual stories for the AJC, but also contribute uh, to the jolt. Uh, which you can, re- can read every day at AJC.com, are with us today. And Don Lowry, host of Lawmakers, uh, going in. Is this your fourth year hosting the show, Donna? It is. Yeah, it, 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 Con- very much so. Yeah, I'm enjoying Congratulations. it. Congratulations. It's a much Thank better you. show with you than it was during the two years not, I hosted it before. Not that. true. Yeah, I guarantee you. No, no. People I guarantee. Miss All right, you, Donna. I promise you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> let's let's turn let's turn to a, an important piece of legislation that I believe you talked about on on the show the other night. Um, Senator Clint Dixon has now introduced uh, uh, this measure that would prevent any medical treatment for children uh, for transgender children, saying that uh, essentially young people. Uh, should not be put in a position where uh, they make the major decisions about something like gender at an early age, right? Yes, absolutely. And it was uh, good that it just so happened that um, the AJC's Maya Prabhu was on the show and was able to uh, tell us about that story that she found in the hopper and came on the show to talk about. So it's not just surgeries, it's hormone therapy, it's it's uh, the treatments for uh, transgender minors. And um, and there is still a lot to, to go through in the bill that, that Maya was still going through as, as we were on the show. But interestingly, also, we had on the show uh, Senator Sally Harrell, 
who has a trans child. She had not had the chance to look through the bill, but said if she had the chance to come up with some legislation, it would focus more on the mental health issues of children who are going through trying to figure out who they are. And so she 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 discussed that. But I think we're going to see more and more of this type of legislation. We've talked about the fact that it's been kind of slow at the legislature now. Uh, things are starting to speed up. A uh, reminder that, you know, back in 2019, the um, the heartbeat bill was one of those things that came near the closer to crossover day and then sped through the legislature. And I think th that bills like this that have uh, strong partisan support uh, are we're going to see them come up. And, and this is one of them. Uh, transgender sports came at the last minute and uh, tucked onto another bill last year on um, Sunny Die. So we're going to see a lot more of this kind of thing. You know, Greg, uh, obviously transgender issues are part of the culture war that Republicans across the country are engaged in. Um, I, I suppose you could make the argument that uh, some of the Republicans who push these measures really do have the best interests, I suppose, of children. Uh, let me read from Senator Dixon's statement to Maya Prabhu. The state is a compelling interest to protect all young Georgians from harm. Allowing Georgians who cannot legally vote, smoke, or purchase a firearm to make a high-stakes decision with irreparable consequences is dangerous and must be addressed immediately by the Georgia General Assembly. Well, I understand that as far as it goes. But, Greg, it preempts the responsibility of parents who see what their children are struggling with every single day with this kind of issue, which is why it feels more like a cultural issue than a serious medical concern. And it has become a cultural issue. I mean, we, we talked about this all throughout the 2022 campaign where Republicans were bringing it up. Herschel Walker was bringing it up on the campaign trail till the very last day of his of his runoff campaign. You're right. Um, if, there, if there was a huge surprise last year during the legislative session, to me, it was the fact that um, lawmakers passed a measure that cleared the way for a ban on transgender uh, athletes to compete in women's high school sports because we knew that the late Speaker David Ralston had serious objections to that, but yet still passed it to help Brian Kemp in a primary against David Perdue. So it's clearly not just a medical issue, it's a cultural political issue. And look, advocates of transgender and LGBTQ say it's really rare for doctors to perform any sort of non-reversible procedures on minors. And in Georgia, according to State Senator Kim Jackson, who studied this issue, uh, these surgeries aren't happening at all. So this is uh, what Democrats are going to say is this is a solution for a, for a problem that doesn't exist. Tia? Yeah, I was, Greg, exactly what I was going to say. This, you know, very similar to what we've seen Republicans in Georgia do is come up with legislation that speaks to the culture wars that polls high among their base and might help them win a primary, but doesn't necessarily speak to big issues of the day in Georgia, definitely doesn't speak to the big issues of the day that Georgia voters, I would say, think most important. I would, I would guess as we continue to poll uh, transgender issues, yes, conservatives are concerned, but it's not the number one issue of any voter uh, above the economy and jobs, crime, even if you if you will. Um, and I think it is also, we need to make sure that we're talking to transgender 
people, families with transgender people and doctors who work with people who identify as transgender to really put these issues in context, because that's often missing, particularly from the Republican talking points. When you talk about the fact that for young people, usually the first step is not surgery. Matter of fact, most transgender adults don't even have surgery. Um, but particularly for young people, what you're talking about is as a first step is puberty blocking um, medication. So that gives them time to figure out, you know, what they want, get that mental health treatment, get that analysis to figure out, are you, um, is this something that permanently you would like to, you know, again, have transition there um, without surgery, just blocking the development of, you know, the things that develop when you hit puberty, delaying that for a little bit as they uh, talk with their doctors and their therapists. All right, uh, Donna, I, what do you suspect? I mean, you, you mentioned the heartbeat law, which came through at the last minute. Many people were opposed to it, including leadership, but the surge of uh, right-wing support for it just made it inevitable. Uh, this could be an inevitability as well. Yeah, it looks like it has. There are 12, uh, there's 12 signers. Um, Senator Dixon is, Clint Dixon is the um, main sponsor, but there are 12 signers on this, on the Senate side. We'll have to, you know, we haven't heard a lot about from the House, um, except for Senator Kim Jackson. Um, but we, I think this, we could see uh, more of this. Uh, I think they put it out there early enough for um, the discussion to take place when it comes to this. But uh, I think we're going to hear, um, we're going <clears> to <throat> not only this bill, but we're going to see other bills that have under the culture wars banner come up in the next few weeks. Yesterday, quietly, a group of people who are, um, are, are, are um, anti-abortion people were at the Capitol. We didn't find out about it until we were just happened to walk by and they did not have a press conference or anything. But I think we're going to slowly see some of these things that are um, going to get both sides kind of riled up, uh, come up in the next few weeks. All right. Um, I've got to get to a break in a minute, but I've had a note uh, for a couple of days now uh, that I wanted to ask. And, and Tia, you're the right one to ask about this. Uh, forgive the pun I'm about to make. It is a small bore issue, but it is worthy of some attention. Uh, Ninth District Congressman Andrew Clyde has been walking around the Capitol handing out AR-15 assault weapon pins for members to wear. And apparently, and you can tell us, a number of members have been wearing them proudly. What the heck, Tia? He is a gun store yeah. owner, we know. Yes, he owns a couple of gun stores in the Athens area. We actually talked a little bit, up, but our jolt readers know about these pins because we uh, talked about it a little bit earlier this week. But, you know, what Andrew Clyde says is these pins are just a visual sign of their support for the Second Amendment. Um, not surprisingly, Clyde believes that the Second Amendment uh, allows the right to own guns, any basically unfettered. He doesn't believe in any limitations uh, really on that and definitely doesn't want um, government to require permitting and things like that. 
And so he's getting other far right Republicans who say they agree with him to wear this pin. Now, where the controversy comes up is not just about supporting the Second Amendment, but having a pin that is an assault rifle that is used in mass shootings has troubled some Democrats. They said even one member had just had a mass shooting in her district and it was using the same type of gun that was depicted in the pin she was wearing. Greg? Yeah, I remember too, as he was running for office, what was on his signs, uh, the, the stencil of uh, AR-15. So uh, I've been to his gun store. It's shaped like a castle. Um, and you walk in and there's there's all sorts of high caliber weapons. It, it was it was a part of his his appeal to a lot of conservative voters in Northeast Georgia. All right. Well, and, you know, it's probably another sign that despite the recent spate again of mass shootings, Congress is going to do nothing about limiting guns in any way. Uh, let's get to our final break of the show. Back with more in just a minute. Great panel today, Tia Mitchell, Greg Bluestein, Donna Lowry. I want to get to a few issues, kind of touch on them lightly to get through them before the end of the show. Donna, one of them is the fact that I think I'm prepared to announce, uh, because you got to do it early, uh, that even though the bill to uh, make Buckhead a separate city has not passed the legislature yet, the fact that they, the bill shows that the salary for the job of mayor is going to be $225,000, I think I'm ready to declare I'm a candidate right now. <laughs> Donna? I, I get it, and I, and I support you. $225,000, more than may, may, uh, the governor makes at $175,000, also increases for those who would be on this city council. Uh, so $72,000. It's amazing to think that they would be making that lots more than what the lawmakers are making at the Capitol who've tried to get pay raises in the past and haven't been able to get it. And then the, the whole idea that Buckhead is, sees itself as elitist, right? And this is further proof that this is what we're going for. We're going to separate ourselves from the, the, the city of Atlanta. And um, and and we're going to really show that we're we're different and that, you know, we've got this kind of class um, difference with everybody else by um, paying a whole lot more. Greg, the bill doesn't really have the bill doesn't have legs so far this session. You never know what can happen. But I, I can't help but think, you know, Bill White's been the leader of this movement all along. And there's always been this uh, uh, speculation that, of course, if they win, He's going to run for mayor. This is a pretty cushy job. Yeah, it is. And that, I understand why you're running, even if you don't live in Bucket. Um, no, this bill was always seen as dead <laughs> on arrival. One Republican leader said it's deader than a doornail. So um, it, it's it, it. But I don't understand why they they. This was a change from last year's legislation where they decided to add um, the uh, the two hundred twenty five thousand dollars salary. That's more than any mayor. In, in Georgia makes. That's more than the mayor of Atlanta makes, of course. That's more than the governor makes. That's on par with what the governor of New York State makes. So that just gives you a glimpse of uh, the funding right there behind it. I, I, uh, I, you know, I've heard from even Republicans who are supportive of it, that this was a major, major error. Again, it's not going anywhere, um, not with the, the improved relations between the city and the state. 
Um, we've 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 never heard the governor rule it out, but we also haven't heard him say one single good word about it. Same thing with House Speaker John Burns, uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, um, Burt Jones, who supported it last year. He's taken a stance of, "Hey, I'm not going to put it on top of my priority. I'm not going to stop it either." So we're not going to he hear anyone say it's it, you know, publicly say it's dead, but privately they're saying this bill isn't going anywhere. Uh, Tia, let me change subjects if I might. You were in the gallery. You watched the chaos on the floor, the Republican reaction to President Biden. Let me ask you a very basic question. Is Marjorie Taylor Greene now the face of the Republican Party on Capitol Hill? You ask a question that AJC reader, readers will have me attempting to address in an article that I'm like literally writing as soon as I get off air. Um, so the preview <laughs> is, I think she's, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene is who a lot of Republicans in Congress wish they could be. And so she's becoming the standard bearer of hard right politics. Um, but she's also become more savvy. So she's picking her battles carefully, which means she's willing to yell out liar at President Biden. She's not willing to buck Kevin McCarthy, who she knew was going to become House Speaker come hell or high water. Hopefully I'm able to say that on the radio. Um, so I think that's what we're seeing here. And I know a lot of people get upset when we say, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is maturing as a politician and becoming more savvy. But we're not saying that her politics, her ideas are changing. We're saying her approach, she's showing that there's nuance there. She is willing to burn it all down when she believes in the message. Again, she's willing to burn it all down against her enemies, which, uh, you know, progressive ideas, Democrats, President Biden, those folks, she's just as fiery as she's ever been. And she's made that clear this week. But she's also shown that when she thinks she needs to get along, she'll do that, too. So, but Greg, what's interesting about it is that certainly the photographs and the video of Marjorie Taylor Greene yelling liar and protesting throughout the State of the Union address were ubiquitous, but the president schooled her. <laughs> the president, in the way in which he turned the whole issue of Social Security and Medicare uh, around on Republicans and said, well, I'm glad we're in agreement. You're not going to take it up. Uh, uh, you're, you're not going to put it up for uh, possible uh, 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 votes in, in the coming. I thought in the long run, Biden won the day. Yeah, that was the defining moment of the speech to me, of the address to me, because Republicans were heckling him and jeering him throughout. And there was a little back and forth. And, and he seemed to invite it. Right. He seemed to enjoy it. And that was the moment where uh, the president said, OK, and then if you're not against cuts to these safety net programs, then 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 I guess we're all on the same page. And it quickly quieted the crowd. And you could see Speaker Kevin McCarthy grimacing throughout, too, hoping that they would kind of pipe down because he knew that was playing right into Joe Biden's hands. Yeah. Um, all right. I, I we are out of time for our conversation today. Um, Donna Lowry, I. Uh, very much appreciate your coming on because you've been working long hours. Tia Mitchell, you have uh, too. And Bluestein, you always work uh, uh, more hours than just about any of us out there. So thanks to the three of you for being here. Um, I'm, I'm stopping the conversation just a little bit early today because I really want to spend just a moment 
uh, talking about Burt Bacharach. Bacharach died yesterday at 94 years old. For people of generations, oh, I think beyond millennials, he was one of the great American songwriters. That's what friends are for. Raindrops keep falling on my head. This guy's in love with you. Um, so many, The Look of Love, so many wonderful songs. And Bacharach was a real staple in our house. Janice and I this morning got up a little early and we listened to uh, 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 A House Is Not a Home uh, and a couple of other of the songs that mean so much to us. And, and so I just wanted to end of the week by thanking Bert Bacharach for bringing such joyful, beautiful music into our house and I know into the house of millions of people out there. So as we leave you today and uh, say we'll see you again on Monday, I'm going to play a little bit of a song that Bert Bacharach wrote with lyrics by Hal David, brilliant lyrics by his partner Hal David. That seems perfect uh, as Bert Bacharach's life ends. It's him sitting at a concert piano singing his song, Elfie. Thank you all for being here for the show this week. We'll see you again on Monday. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy, everybody. What's it all about? Alfie, is it just for the moment we live? What's it all about when you sort it out, Alfie?